SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Hello and welcome to a sequel cast special, a show about random pop culture topics. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. Um, every once in a while, we have to do an in memoriam episode when someone significant or, or someone whose work we feel is significant has died. And unfortunately, um, this past week, uh, the Richard Donner has passed. He is the director of so many films that people know, but you know, people might know him best for doing the the four Lethal Weapon movies or the Goonies or or Lady Hawk, or what have you, or the, the original uh, Superman movie. I mean, he's done so many, and we'll get into that. Um, with me is Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And Alex. They call him Dick Donner. He's a pretty great guy. So good at his job, he wouldn't let a goldfish die. Oh, yeah. The goldfish story with the omen, right. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, Richard Donner, he is... I believe he was like 90 or 91 or something, but he did TV for a good uh, almost two decades. Yeah, I mean, he was just like a workman TV director doing mostly, you know, just, you know, just a handful of episodes here and there on every kind of show. He did Wild Wild West. He did The Fugitive. He did The FBI. He did a, he did two episodes of Get Smart. What really jumped out at me, though, looking at his his television work, oh, yeah, he did a Gilligan's Island, The Man from Uncle, Twi- original Twilight Zone. But he did in the he did in the Banana Splits Adventure Hour, he directed the Danger Island segments. What? And this this is a, and this is two levels of obscurity. The banana splits. If anyone knows them today, it's probably from that direct-to-video movie that came out uh, uh, last year. But the Danger Island segments. It was this. Uh, it was it was live action. It was a live action kids thing produced by Hanna Barbera. But it's essentially just classic Hanna Barbera. It's meddling kids on an island trying to find treasure. And then, like, gangsters and pirates show up, and everyone's constantly being kidnapped and running from danger. That sounds awesome. Right. I mean, and you look at the variety of things he did, everything from, like, uh, Wagon Train, uh, The Lieutenant, uh, Man from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason. I mean, the original Perry Mason, I should add, Get Smart. He's all over the place, Uh, even the original Fugitive series. And you mentioned Twilight Zone. I mean, he directed... uh, an episode that was later has been remade a few times, uh, once in Twilight Zone, the movie, and I think uh, uh, once in the most recent version on CBS All Access, or I guess now it's called Paramount Plus. Um, uh, the, the Jordan Peele one, yeah. Right, and uh, the episode is The Terror at 40,000 Feet, 
with oh, William yes. Shatner. And uh, there's something on the wing. Yeah, I mean, that That's one with the like gremlin. the classic of the classic Twilight Zones right there. Mm-hmm. Um, from the last season of the series, I believe. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the classic ones people remember for good reason. And when he was doing all this television um, early in his career, he did have some features and uh, a lot of his older stuff is just really hard to find. He did like a a movie called Salt and Pepper that had mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, was was like a, a cop movie. I th- or it was about owners of a nightclub in Soho and, and Peter Lawford investigating a murder. Uh, something called the London Affair. It looks like it was also called Lola. Interesting. Um, but uh, he I did mean, a Cold it, War thriller called like X fifteen about an experimental supersonic aircraft that had Charles Bronson in it. Nice. Bronson. Yeah, did. I mean, what a time to come up in the, in the age of television. I mean, this is like how John Frankenheimer got their start. Sidney Lumet. Um, Franklin Schaffner, I mean, he would, he didn't just direct like a little bit of great television, but he, you know, wanted Dead or Alive, The Rifleman, that's how Sam Peckinpah got a start. I mean, he was coming up with like great company and it's no wonder that he became such a proficient and, uh, you know, prolific director. And that he did all the genres too. And, and I mean, that he did so much television, I think it probably influenced the way he shot his films, uh, in that his shooting style is, is pretty formal and very matter-of-fact. Well, it's you know, also very economical, which you've got oh, yeah. to be on mm-hmm. a TV schedule back in those days. Right, I mean, you're not going to see... He, he did use handheld camera for, for some things here and there, but there's not a lot of, like, show-off fancy shots. It's just, uh, you know, just keep... It was about just keep the story moving and keep uh, keep doing it. I mean, but by but you know, looking at his date of birth here. Oh, come on. Nineteen thirty, I think. Yeah, nineteen thirty. Thank you. Um, and by the time he did, you know, his first big theatrical film was The Omen in seventy six. So he was already forty six years old by the time he did his his first, you know, big studio picture. Yeah, so there's still hope, you know, for me. <laughs> well, and, but right. then be, beyond that, though, his first studio picture, his first, you know, theatrical film, that is so big, he essentially has kind of a blank check for the rest of his career, and he keeps turning out hits that are that are that big or bigger. Right, and, and I, I did... think it's interesting. Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it isn't his first one. He did things like Salt and Pepper and a few kind of smaller films, but The Omen was was a huge smash, and I think you're right, that, that opened the door to a lot of things maybe he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise. Um, Alex? The thing, too, is that, like, The Omen is up there. It's one of those horror movies that appeals to the non-horror crowd, you know? This is, like, when horror films went from being, like, you know, Corman and Hammer joints to, like, The Exorcist, Alien, uh, you know what I mean? Like, these, these bigger, you know, giant, you know, huge blockbusters. Because... You've got a very, you got a very, very talented director behind the camera, and also you've got Gregory Peck, Lee Remick. Um, I mean, this like uh, David Warner, this like Rolodex of like mainstream talent, and Richard Donner kind of did what a lot of other horror directors are doing at this time, like Bill Friedkin and, and all these other guys, and they were kind of legitimizing the illegitimate themes that you'd get with like you know a child being the spawn of satan you know same thing with like rosemary's baby is that you know you take a very far out concept and then you kind of ground it and there's a believability to the omen because you have gregory peck and reddick and and freaking david warner and they they play it fairly seriously and it becomes a great 
horror film that you know like it, it kind of takes horror into the mainstream in, in a way away from like you know just the, the echelons of b movies and drive-ins yeah and like rather than rather than you know being a movie about the antichrist rather than like being overtly supernatural in its horror it's all sort of inexplicable things and, and weird exactly. human behaviors that can eventually be traced back to this antichrist figure Right. Or maybe it's just a bunch of coincidences, right? I mean, the guy, you know, put the thing in park and hit the clutch accidentally. So, hey. well, yeah, I mean, that's that's that's, you know, that's the other thing is is Gregory Peck dealing with the Antichrist or is he himself going crazy because of a, a paranoid delusion? Yeah, it's 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 so brilliant. And again, it's like the thing you saw in Rosemary's Baby. There's a there's an alternate narrative where, you know, this is all in in her head, you know, it is the same thing with the omen. And um and you get that brilliant little moment at the end, spoilers for the omen, I guess, um, where the kid looks at the camera and is just kind of like, eh. You know, it's it's practically a wink. And it's uh, it's that, like, wry sense of humor that I think goes through his uh, filmography that I think makes his material so great. But let me ask you guys a, real, a quick question. When you hear Richard Donner, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Is he the Lethal Weapon guy? Is he the Goonies guy? Stra- strangely enough, Superman 2. Okay. All right. Cool. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I think for me it would be uh, Lethal Weapon. I think specifically Lethal Weapon Four um, is not my favorite in the series, but when I started working at a movie theater, that was the first big movie that came out, and and I just remember people leaving that theater and just really enjoying how good the movie was. But it might have just because been it was you know six years since they did a Lethal Weapon film. And um, I think maybe it felt a bit newer because you had Chris Rock in there in a supporting part and you had uh, Jet Li as a bad guy. And and um, specifically, I remember so many women uh, going out of the theater going like, Jet Li's not in his 40s, he's a young man or whatever. You know, people that had, had no idea of this career this guy had. And with Lethal Weapon 4, um, originally they wanted Jackie Chan to play the bad guy, but Jackie Chan says, I don't play bad guys. Yeah. And yeah, other than a role or two early, early in his career, he, he's pretty much stuck by that. Doesn't mean he, he's always the main character in a movie, but he's, um, you One know, not, not a villain. Played a bad guy was uh, to help his friend Jimmy Wong Yu out of a gambling debt with the triads, and that was the Killer Meteors, and it's largely shelved. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, for for it was actually funny because Lethal Weapon Four could have been horrible, and it was pretty damn good if you ask me. For considering it's the it's the fourth one, and they're doing the East meets West thing. Um, for me though, it's always it's the Omen. That was a big, I was a big horror fan growing up, and that was like you know, boom, that that was a huge movie. You know, once I saw David Warner's head doing a little three sixty there, uh, I was sold. Um, and then yeah, you know, I was looking at the back of the VHS cover. You're like, hey, this Richard Donner guy, all right. And then you start to link things up. You know, before IMDb and everything, like, ooh, Lethal Weapon, same name. All right, this is cool. Right. I mean, Thrasher, you said Superman 2. Are you talking about specifically the Richard Donner cut or all, or is it kind of like the legendary status that had in conventions for years before it was officially released? It- it's it probably is just like the the legendary status, but like like the the Superman was probably the first Richard Donner movie that I ever uh, saw, but Superman two was the first one that I saw multiple times and was able to really sort of study and appreciate, and I think mm. I think that's why that's the one that really sticks with me. Because with Superman, um, I mean it's been a while since we've covered those movies, but listeners might recall. Uh, if you're up in your film history, it was filmed back to back with Superman two, and then Richard Dyer, Richard Donner, was just fired from it, and it was uh, 
they had Richard Lester reshoot enough of it where Richard Lester got the sole credit. And then later, when you're seeing a lot of special cuts of, of movies for the um, hot DVD market, you eventually had Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. And it it uses a lot of alternate takes. It, it has a lot of different stuff in there. I don't think it's completely successful, but I like that it exists and that they have uh, John Williams cues from the first film as music instead of uh, the composer they went with who, um, you know, isn't as, as good as John Williams. They just but used a lot of his themes mm. was was really something. It's actually funny. This was the one that I grew up with, and it was like, you know, scribbled on a VHS tape. It wasn't like labeled properly. And um, for the longest time, I don't think I had even seen the first Superman. Like, this was just, we just called it, like, the Superman movie. You know what I mean? Like, the, the credits were ever, you know, usually not being paid attention to. So for years, I always just associated this as, like, the Sovereign Superman film, you know, from the from the 70s. And um, I, obviously, maybe it's a personal bias, but this was always my favorite. I think the... I think the villains in it. I think uh, Terrence Stamp has always been one of my favorite actors. I love him as uh, General Zod. I, th- I think it's so cool. Um, but yeah, Superman 2 kicks ass. And I haven't seen the Donner Cut, but I will definitely have to check it out. I had the chance to see the Donner Cut in a theater um, nice. quite some time ago, and that was pretty neat to see. Although, I mean, some of the changes, it's it's weird, as you were mentioning, like Superman 2, the version that was always on TV was the original theatrical, or sometimes the expanded version of the Lester Cut. And, you know, there's a scene where, uh, towards the end, where they kind of wreck up some of the downtown, and um, Terrence Stamp comes and kind of gives a monologue, and then in the in the um, theatrical cut, he says, like, Tara to kick, Tara to, ah, what is it, care to take this outside, and it's uh-huh. a big kind of applause moment. In the Donner cut, he says, haven't you heard of freedom of the press, which doesn't uh-huh. quite, it's a funny line, but it's not exactly what... Uh, people were thinking, uh, you know, it doesn't. It's not quite that same emotion they're going for, and I don't know if they did that just because it was a different cut. Who knows? Or, yeah. Uh, who? I mean, there's a lot of different. I mean, the overall story is the same. It, I don't think it works miracles, but it, you, you get a lot more of um, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 that sort of thing. And uh, it's. I mean, it's a shame Christopher Reeve had died before they did the Donner cut. Cause I would have liked to see what he would have said about it. But, um, but there you go. Um, the, I guess we'll just go through his films one by one and talk about if we've seen them or not and kind of give our opinions on this episode. Uh, the next one is one I, I was reading about last night, uh, inside moves, a pretty small kind of independent film based about, um, you have like a, a, a person that was handicapped after he fails to kill himself and he, he's with like a guy with no arms and has kind of all these people that are handicapped in different ways and try, he's trying to uh, find a reason to to live again and do uh, just find you know a way to carry on his life and if he's going to have the same bad crowd he was hanging around or not and uh, this had this was unreleased for years on DVD. I've never seen this. It did get an Oscar nomination for supporting actress. Um, have either of you seen this picture? Regrettably, no. No, but I I want to because I I really want to see John Savage in a in a leading role. I mean, he's obviously had leading roles before, but he's usually like you know 
kind of secondary, like in The Deer Hunter or something like that. But I think John Savage is a terrific actor. Um, so I definitely like to check that out. And I mean, uh, after a failed suicide attempt, and then after seeing, you know, The Deer Hunter, it's like, ah, this guy's been through so much in the year 1980. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to check it out. It looks great. And the next one, you know, it's a Richard Pryor movie in, in the 80s called The Toy with Pryor and uh, Jackie Gleason. This one I have not seen in ages. I feel like the last time I saw it was when I when I was 10 or so. It was constantly it was constantly running on cable for a while in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And it and it's like a weird premise. There's like uh, Jackie Gleason plays this like rich guy with kind of like a spoiled son, and like the son's like, well, you can, well, like, well, you can have anything you want for your birthday, and the son just points at like a random employee who's in the process of being laid off, and like, I want that guy. So that guy being Richard Pryor. So effectively, they, the son. Like the Richard Pryor is basically paid to be the son's like best friend, but there's there's that whole thing where it's effectively it's it's about a father buying a slave for his son in the modern day. It's very, right. very fucked up. But you know he does you know show, uh you know it it you know the son learns to become a bit become more human because he can finally have like somebody he can interact with on a human level. Yeah, I was thinking, I was like, the, that whole theme is just too fucked up to be, like, an incident, so there has to be some, like, metaphor there, you know what I mean? Um, well, and... It's so weird, I'm shocked that there that there was never, like, a parody of this exact premise. Well, this right. is a remake of a French film. So... Uh, that doesn't actually surprise me. You were um... seeing that a lot in the 80s with things like Three Men and a Little Baby and, and, and other pictures where they would use for whatever reason they were trying to remake French movies or sometimes bring the original French director or sometimes a person have you right have you seen the poster for the original French version no well because it looks like he he doesn't purchase a black dude but like it's like this guy with zany red hair as Ah. like a wind-up doll uh, done up with ribbons Le Joette it's or Lejoie, I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced. It's just this goofy image. It almost looks like Gene Wilder. Oh, and also the gag is that the the, the young master is last name's Bates. So ha ha ha, master Bates. With with this one, it is. Um, I did read a biography of Richard Donner from a while ago called something like "You're the director, you figure it out." It has some the the, t- the title's not the best thing, but it mentioned on the toy. It was a difficult shoot. Richard Pryor would get like high every day or just sometimes not show up. No, Richard Jackie, Pryor. And Jackie Gleason was just difficult to, to work with and also felt kind of competitive. Like, hey, there's this uh, more successful uh, comedy actor in this part of the movie. And so there's this kind of weird competitiveness between the two of them. And uh, Comedy Central used to play this a lot. I've, I've only seen bits and pieces here. But yeah, that the premise... I get that Richard Pryor was a, a famous actor, but when you have it as a um, as a black man in that role, it kind of brings up all kinds of uh, problematic issues. And I wonder if you could maybe do a version of that to be more, like you said, like a spoof or more satirical or something. Yeah, or like really get some mileage out of that uh, really fucked up premise. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's it's it's. it's it's a weird concept, and um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Maybe I'd rewatch it just to 
try and see if I can dig some more uh, dig some more context out of it or what have you. But yeah. And the next one is uh, Lady Hawk, 1985. This one didn't do very well in the theaters, but it's kind of become a cult classic since. It has a young Michelle Pfeiffer. It has a uh, Rutger Hauer and um, Matthew Broderick. And a score that I, I think doesn't work at all by uh, Alan yeah, Parsons. You do okay. not like the score. I remember that. <laughs> it's this very electronic uh, 80s thing, and they were trying to do it to make it more modern, to make the movie appeal to a younger crowd. But it sounds more like something in the background of a jazzercise video. It's definitely bleepy and bloopy. And I think I had actually seen this for the first time during the initial lockdown. And I think I told you guys on the show that walking into it, I thought it was like this, like Ken Loach, like uh, kitchen sink, like realist film, because it just kind of oh. like like looks like Matthew Broderick's wearing a hoodie on the cover, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of this like mysterious chick in the background, like a falcon. So like you ever see like that movie Cast about like the poor like Irish kid who has like the kestrel, and then like it's a sad freaking thing. So I was like getting this like weird like you know uh, scrappy low down low budget like romance film almost or something like that. Oh wow, was I wrong? I, I was like, oh wow, it's fantasy, sweet. This is this is pretty fucking cool. Um, needless to say, I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh, it, it, well, I just noticed it's written by Edward Kamara, who the same year did did the script for Enemy Mine. Oh, that's quite the pair of films. Uh, but no, like like Lady Hawk, it it is it is a fascinating artifact of the eighties. Uh, you know, so many interesting people in it. It's. I would say that of of all of, of Richard Donard's like theatrical work, this is the one that feels most like a television production. But oh, if yeah. this had been released as a TV movie, it would probably be remembered as the greatest TV movie of all time. Exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, yeah, Matt, the Matthew Broderick kind of more comedic stuff with him as the the monk, I believe, doesn't quite work. But uh, one actor that was trying to go for that part originally is Rick Moranis, and perhaps that would have been better. Mm. But there is there's you know a nice scope to it and there's kind of a tragic uh romeo and juliet thing going on with the irony of um you know when the titular uh when the character turns into a hawk and so forth um but yeah a lot of nice uh, scenery and and uh and things going on yeah i feel like this was kind of like flirting with what the princess bride would be later mm-hmm. on like like a kind of modern sensibility throwback to like you know romantic fantasy type deal because uh, i think the only issue with lady hawk is that a it's like 10 minutes too long and b it's like i said the the modern not so classic modern fantasy stuff bumps a little bit i, I like matthew roderick in it but he's just a little too like what what are you talking about <laughs> you know mm-hmm. well also th- this movie has just enough of a gimmick that due to due to magic the two people who are in love are animals at different times and can never interact with each other on a human level until there's an eclipse where it's technically both night and day at the same time that is just enough of a gimmick i am shocked this hasn't been remade and overcomplicated. <laughs> Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Yeah, it's, or you could do it. Beautiful. I think you mentioned TV movie. I mean, you could do this concept. I think as a TV series or something. And yeah, I don't know. Do uh, there's cer- there's certainly something there. And I think yeah, if you're going to remake something, it's better to remake something that's kind of a cult movie, and you can kind of do something a bit different with the material. Uh, in '85, that same year, he directed The Goonies, 
a rare film that has a story by Steven Spielberg credit. And um, it is really uh, a classic for those who watched it as a kid. I mean, I didn't watch this until I was, I think, in college or high school. I watched it pretty late. So I, I have a hard time getting into it. But I did get a, a chance to see it in a theater at um, when I was in Georgia State University in Atlanta. And that was fun to see on the big screen and seeing people uh, react to it in that way. And out here in Astoria, Oregon, uh, um, probably I think a few hours from where I live, uh, there is the Goonie House, but the current owners have it covered with a big blue tarp because they get bothered all the time by people. But I think uh, if, uh, yeah. if I own that property and it's not a cheap uh, piece of property, I would want to make it a museum or something. Right. Uh, I didn't realize, but uh, Curtis Hansen has a small role in Goonies as well as um, I love Curtis Hansen, director of Elliot Confidential and a bunch of other hmm. great stuff. But also Joey Pantoliano's in this. I, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he's one of the criminals. Um, That's great. But th this is really just like a delightful film. I saw it like in the 80s, I think on cable shortly after it came out. Uh, it In the 90s, it ran almost constantly on like, P uh, not PB, uh, TBS, which I think yeah. is where I saw it the most. But it's just like, just so delightful. It's like, it's a movie about the type of kids who would love the Indiana Jones movies having their own little Indiana Jones adventure. Like they're just fucking around with like a local legend about a local pirate who supposedly buried treasure in their hometown. And not only does it turn out that treasure is real gangsters come after them. There's a kind hearted monster. And like they, they do all the stuff Indiana Jones does <laughs> and they end up sailing away on a pirate ship full of gold. Well, Josh yeah. Groban is the older brother in this, but he's still pretty young. He's like the old guy in the movie, so to speak, of the, the group of kids. But he's well, pretty it's young. It's oh, Josh Groban? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because he looks exactly the same, but he's smaller. Like, you know, his like facial structure, everything. he looks like the same exact Josh Groban we know and love today, but he's just like shrunken down. It's, it's really funny. But it's also, you know, it's probably like the most sort of self-referential of of everything produced by Spielberg's kind of inner circle. There's even that whole bit where when the gangsters show up and they call the police and the police won't believe them because like la the previous month they had called the police to report little green monsters that reproduce when they get wet taking over the town. <laughs> Which for all we know maybe actually happened. Yeah, hey, these 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 worlds could intersect. Also uh, worth noting, Richard Donner directed the really long two-part music video of Cyndi Lauper's uh, theme song for the film, The Goonies Are Good Enough. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this, this was in the time when you had people like like uh, Francis Ford Coppola and... Uh, and, and and other and like and other other like big name directors directing prestigious music videos. Yeah, like John Landis was doing Thriller yep. at the time, I think. Oh yeah, Scorsese did one of the Michael Jackson videos. I think it was yeah. bad. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This was another we had on VHS, taped off of HBO as a kid, watched all the time movies. Um, yeah, a lot of memories, a lot of nostalgia there. I think you know anyone our age is probably knows and loves this movie um uh it's a lot of fun and i totally didn't have a big old crush on martha plimpton growing up uh but yeah what a cast that i'm looking at here and i got richard donner also has an uncredited cameos uh one of the police policemen there at the end 
Oh, but also, uh, so the 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 kind-hearted monster uh, sloth, uh, who's in this, who gets who gets a literal Superman moment when he's got the Superman T-shirt on under his clothes and he saves the kids. Something that I absolutely love. This movie is very anchored in the '80s. It is full of of like references to pop culture things going on at the time. We've already mentioned the whole like Gremlins reference, but like his whole thing is going, "Hey, you guys." Which is Josie the Helper's catchphrase from the Electric Company, which was huge at the time. Oh my goodness, that was totally over my head, but yeah, I can hear it now. Mm-hmm. But it's full of things like that, it's like full full of little pop culture things that kids of the time would have known, but they don't like aggressively hit you over the head of it. Like after the reference, there's no nudge, nudge, wink, wink, did you get it moment. Right. And to this day, if I get a thing of Rocky Road ice cream, I will grab and go, Rocky Road! And I'll look up and see who who, who gets it, you know, usually. Now it's not so many people, but, yeah. It's like yeah, the I mean, later. If you If you get that reference, we can be buddies. Right. And uh, in the next movie he did uh, a few years later was pretty iconic, the original Lethal Weapon in 87. Um, bing, bang, boom. Which we've covered uh, on sequel cast. Long time ago, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, a friend of the show, uh, Jersey Jason, has a very good Danny Glover impersonation he likes to bust out. Yeah, he does. No, so, no, Danny Glover was on the show. We, we oh, had I him see. as a guest. Of course. Yeah, he's a real good guy, you know. It's yeah. a little grumpy, though, but he's all right. Um, I'm waiting for my... the time when they have uh, Danny Glover and Donald Glover both starring in the same movie, but I don't think that would happen. <laughs> And there'll be a rivalry with uh, Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen. Of course. Oh, <laughs> that would be delightful. <laughs> um, this is one thing I think is interesting. I've, uh, I, I, I love the Lethal Weapon uh, series. Hey, Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well. Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. <laughs> and we're back, folks, with another episode of Nasty Labs. Nasty Labs. It's a show hosted by me, Kinsey Burke, and my dumbass friend, Mark. Nasty this twice-monthly show about game development, Japan life, being nice to people, and hey, maybe a few other things. Nasty Labs is a product of Chuhai Labs Brand Incorporated, and now available for three easy payments of four twenty sixty nine, only on the Greenlit Podcast Network. And I kind of feel about Shane Black. I, I it's interesting. I think Shane Black is occasionally the greatest. Um, however, I kind of feel about him the way I feel about Aaron Sorkin. I'd rather have somebody direct his script mm. and have it not be the Shane Black show because all the Shane Black stuff is there. But with Richard Donner's direction, I think it comes off so much better than when Shane Black runs the runs the show, so to speak. Um, I don't. I'm sure people disagree with me. Um, how do you how do you feel about that? I like what I've seen of the Shane Black directed stuff, but it does seem like he's trying when he directs his own movies, he seems like he's trying to cram as much dialogue as possible into everything. And and they feel a little bit manic in that way. Yeah, it's just a little it's just a little it's too much is what it is. Uh-huh. It's, uh, 
it's like the Aaron Sorkin syndrome, you know what I mean? Like when he's directing his own script, it's like, oh, let me breathe. Come on. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I think this. I mean, Lethal Weapon's terrific, and it's an, again thing. It's a it's like the Omen. It's like something that could just be kind of you know schlocky or stupid. You know, the buddy cop movie we've had it before, like you know Hickey and Boggs and uh, Freebie and the Bean. But then with the more like you know sober, steadfast direction, it comes off as like you know something pretty. It's serious, but it's also you know playful, fun, and action packed. One is kind of a flip on um, Forty Eight Hours, right? Where yeah, the the crazy person is the white guy instead of the black guy, and then the cop is the the black guy. Uh, and oh, I mean, crazy. yeah, the first the first one is you know pretty dark. I recall Gary Busey as a villain is a uh, creepy. It's a party was born to play, frankly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and you uh, the first one in in particular. I mean, you do have some explosions here and there, but it's really more about. Uh, you have like domestic things going on with the the Christmas tree and and the fight in the front yard and, and karate moves and uh, Mel Gibson in the in the trailer thinking if he wants to kill himself or not and Three Stooges references. I mean, yeah, there's a lot going on. It's a lot darker, and I think as the movies go on, they get a bit more um, kind of sillier and kind of let's do the biggest explosion here. But I mean, this first one is is just. Uh, just, just a well done film and a good, a great example of that lethal weapon genre. Um, next is Scrooge, which I have not seen in a long time. This was a big uh, Bill Murray uh, comedy, kind of a take on a Christmas Carol, and Bill Murray's playing an asshole, which he, he tends to in movies. Uh, and it it's really become kind of a modern um, holiday classic. You see it on television all the time. Oh yeah, this is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Uh, it, it's just it's just a great a a great like modern retelling of uh, of a Christmas Carol. It's wonderfully cast, and I just love I just love all the behind the scenes television stuff and that whole like th- that whole like S- Santa Claus action movie. <laughs> yeah, that is the fake out opening and. And just and just all these references to the chintziest like television and featuring the solid gold dancers and uh, Mary Lou Retton as Tiny Tim. Um, oh, yeah, just and, uh, yeah the, the, the news leaks that uh, an old woman died of a heart from shock from the the ghost of uh, Christmas Future, and he's like, "Oh, perfect! Let's run that on every ad. This is so scary; it'll kill you." And this is, uh, I mean, what a cast. Also, we've got all these great players. Carrot uh, Allen, John Forsyth, Bobcat Goldthwait, Carol Kane. I love Carol Kane. But Robert Mitchum, not just doing kind of like a little cameo a la Cape Fear, but he's a, he's a main part of the cast. Buster I mean, Poindexter, Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the, you know, the other thing I love about it, it's very anchored in the 80s. I mean, it is it is a perfect counterpoint to the go-go 80s sort of pro-business in environment oh, yeah. like yeah. It, it is it is a perfect rejection of the ethos of its own era yeah oh, totally perfect perfectly said um and yeah again it's that you know greed is good money's cool uh yuppie culture and all that other stuff but i love like we're so used to like deadpan bill murray bill murray but also like i 
I forget how energetic and fun he is in these 80s movies like this and what about Bob and, you know, Groundhog's Day. Like, he just had so much manic energy and it was so much fun to watch. Well, well, when Uh, he has a good old fashioned Bill Murray freak out, like he he hits heights that you normally only ever see Gene Wilder hit. Yeah. And he's got that great range. And there's some emotional um, chutzpah to it, too. Um, And I also in the true spirit of like a Christmas carol uh, in the original story, you know, there's like a good amount of magic going on here too, which I love. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of spooky, kind of fantastical. It's a, uh, it's a great mixture of all these different themes. And um, again, I think that kind of very steadfast direction of Richard Donner is what keeps this grab bag of uh, a stylistic and thematic uh, contrast. I think it keeps it all on track. Yeah, I kind of wonder why he didn't do more comedies. He certainly have comedy as an element in his films, but I mean, I think that was pretty much his last out-and-out comedy he did in his career, and has pretty much did mostly action films, with a few exceptions we'll get into. Yeah, there's like uh, comedic stuff, but they're mm-hmm. predominantly action films, yeah. Right. Uh, 89, Lethal Weapon 2, this is the one with the, the toilet bomb gag and the diplomatic oh, yeah. immunity with the bad guy. Um, Shane Black, again, returned to script this one. I think originally uh, one of the characters was going to die and and they kind of changed stuff like that a bit. I think it's a pretty good sequel, but still that first one, it's really hard to beat Gary Busey for me. I I don't know. There's something really special and novel about the first one, too. And that even though they made four sequels in the first one, Danny Glover is already saying I'm too old for this shit. Right. (laughs) It kind of is. uh, I always thought that sort of funny, but. Well, I think Lethal Weapon 2 is the movie people think of when they hear the title Lethal Weapon. Sure, Oh, yeah, sure. it's got all yep. the gags that you associate with the franchise, but it's actually the second entry, like the toilet bomb, and I'm too old for this shit, and yeah. I think this just like, you know, some dr- of the, Oh, go on. Like, some of the, 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 the... A lot of the darkness has been scraped off by the end of the first one, you know, like, you know, Murk talks about suicidal anymore, you know, there there isn't that, like, existential tumult. Um, that made the first one so uh, so great. Um, but you and know, he's got Joe Pesci. Oh, oh, I, I think that's the third one, right? No, no, he's in the second. He's, he's in introduced the second in the second one. It's and it's then... not like it's not like a role that dominates the movie as it would in yeah. the third one. But he's there mm-hmm. doing his shtick. Yeah, it's been many years since I've seen it. Yeah, he's right on the cast. Holy shit. Um, there's a lot of good stuff though. This is a pretty sturdy sequel though. I, I will say I've always enjoyed the second Lethal Weapon. Sure, this next one is a TV movie on here called Two-Fisted Tales. Oh, uh, this was a pilot. This was oh, was so, so yeah, so Tales from the Crypt, uh, of which Richard Donner did direct the segment Dig This Cat, He's Real Gone, which is a, a great segment with a perfect EC Comics premise. Um, but uh, Two-Fisted Tales, that was, Tales from the Crypt was such a hit there were two attempts to do spinoffs. Well, I guess three attempts to do spinoffs. Only one ever made it to series. Two-Fisted Tales was a pilot for Tales from the Crypt, except it's based on the EC Comics War Comics, of which Two-Fisted Tales was kind of the most well-known. There was also Weird World, which was based on the weird science comics that EC used to put out. Eventually, Uh, there was Perversions of Science, which I believe Donner did direct a segment on, or at least executive produced. That did get one season, and that that is a bizarre series. It's worth checking out just for how bizarre it gets. Do I get whiffs of a Western going on here? 
it, it's pretty much it's mostly 20th century wars. Most of the Two Fisted okay. Tales stories are set in either World War II, Korea, or Viet. Uh, I, I don't actually know. I think it predates Vietnam. I think they they would have a handful of a World War One and like American Civil War and Spanish Civil War stories, but it's mostly World War Two in Korea. I am officially checking this out, and the cast is terrific. Uh, Brad Pitt, Kirk Douglas, Dan Aykroyd. Lance Henriksen. Damn. This looks mm. awesome. Yeah, pretty good. I imagine that's sort of tricky to find, I would think, although it looks like it got a DVD release um, alone, probably because of the actors and Richard Donner, of course. Uh, nice the next one. Right. The next one is a 92 Radio Flyer. Uh, I, other than the movie being about child abuse, I don't really know that much about this. It has a young Elijah Wood. Well, I also. Fairly, uh, uh, quite a bit actually, because that was another one we had on tape. Oh yeah, and Adam Baldwin uh, is in it, however briefly. Wow. If I remember, it was pretty engaging. Um, again, it's a kind of a. It should be more of a downer because it's about child abuse. Um, well, well, that was the thing. That's what I remember from from the era is that. The trailer, the TV ads, all all the marketing made it seem like a delightful, like magical realist, magical realist fantasy film about two brothers who make their little red wagon fly and go on adventures. When in fact, it is about the worst sort of physical and mental abuse children can go through. Uh, and one could argue that the big ending, where the where the wagon really does fly. Is is the kid dying, and that's how their brain processes the experience of dying, right. is flying away on a magic wagon. Um, and and I even remember reading a movie review that's like, okay, before you see this, understand that it is about child abuse, and you will see some dark stuff. Uh, the, the 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 studio did not do its due diligence. They really should have let audiences know that this is about child abuse. You do not want to take your kids into this movie. Mm. Oh, yeah. And we totally saw this under the false pretenses. But, um, you know, since I think uh, we had a proclivity for doom and gloom, we, we, we soldiered through it. Um, and uh, more than once, just because what else are you going to do when you're a kid before the Internet? Well, um, I, th- I think there's a really intelligent decision, though, is that the father, I believe you don't see him ever. Is that he's just like this kind of like towering. You'll see like, you know, from like the waist down kind of thing. But like he's like just kind of this like, you know, creepy big brother presence. Um, well, it does, it does but, uh, make him seem, you know, th- this like in a way even even more monstrous. And it kind of like like I, I've even got like when you're a kid and the, and the world is the wrong size. Like I do have memories where I can think back to something involving an adult. And I have no idea what they look like. I, like, I just see a huge body from the shoulders down in my own memory. Exactly, yeah. And I think there's some effective things like that. Um, tonally, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a juggle, but I think it does a pretty good job of, of channeling its uh, emotional, um, you know, the emotional punch of the story. But also, I like living in a world where Lorraine Bracco is cast as, uh, as, cast as the lead of a film, because she is so damn good. Mm-hmm. And she was so underutilized by Hollywood. Um, I, I love that in a Richard Donner film, she has a, she has a predominantly re- leading role. I mean, she has leading roles and stuff like Goodfellas, but I mean, she is, she's the one in this, and, it's, uh, and it definitely works. 
Yeah, I've been meaning to check this out. I really need to. Um, next, Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, I want to correct you, Thrasher. You said Joe Pesci takes over the film, but he's not in this one that much either. In fact, when they originally shot Lethal Weapon 3, there is no Joe Pesci. And then oh, test audiences yeah. complained about where's Joe Pesci. So they have a scene or two where Joe Pesci has his hair dyed platinum blonde and looks ridiculous. And the way they squeak him into the poster is really forced. You just see like the top of his head between the two of them. Um, this one, you know, it, it tries to go for more with uh, the son of Danny Glover's character getting involved in gang violence, I believe. And um, the plot in this, I think, is kind of muddled and, and overcomplicated. But you do get a romance for Mel Gibson with um, Rene Russo. And I think that part is pretty well done. Yeah, there's, um, I will say this cover put me off of Lethal Weapon 3 for a long time. Yeah. I just, I was like, all right, Lethal Weapon. All right, cool, Lethal Weapon 2, nice. And then I'd pick up Lethal Weapon 3. I'm like, eh, eh, no, thank you. I was like, this just looks silly, like Joe Pesci sneaking in, like, hey, I'm here. Um, I mean, again, it's not a bad movie. I don't think it's a bad movie at all, but it's definitely, you know, step down. Um, right. And um, Lethal Weapon 2, I mean, the famous Joe Pesci scene is with Subway where they, they get the sandwich in a drive-thru. He's like, they fuck you at the drive-thru. But, like, I've never <laughs> seen a Subway with a drive-thru. And maybe that was yeah. just a California thing. I don't know. What about maybe. you, Thrasher? I don't know. They have – I they're rare because, like, most of them yeah. kind of go into, like, strip malls. But, no, we, we've actually got a Subway in town that has a drive-thru. You can find them. I mean, Every once up, in a while, yeah. like a bank will go out of business and then like a franchise will buy mm -hmm. it. So you'll have a fast food joint that would normally never have a drive through, have a drive through. Like we have some Starbucks that have like weird drive throughs. Yes. Yeah, now have drive throughs. But for a long time, they didn't. Um, basically, yeah, if they if they if they get a building that was a bank or a pharmacy, they'll 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 take care. They'll take advantage of the drive through there. And, and Subway, I mean, they mess up my order even when I'm in front of them pointing to the ingredients I want. Like, I, I can't imagine on a drive-thru how much that would make things difficult because of all the toppings and the reception and all, the, all those things. Um, also, I, I don't respond to advertising that declares how fresh or how cold something will be. Like, Coors Light, you know, it's like, oh, cold is beautiful. <laughs> it's not cold if I leave it in my trunk for two weeks. Your food's <laughs> fresh. Which is the only way to drink it, away. really. Well, yeah, and then what I think Coors Light has a thing where, like, if you see the blue in the can, it's the perfect drinking temperature. And it's like... Did people not have the sense of, of um, touching a can and telling if it's cold or not? Is that a right. really feature well, you I, need to build into each can? <laughs> so when I'm done drinking the beer and I cut the can open with a, my freaking pocket knife, I'll tell if it was at the perfect drinking temperature, which it won't be because it'll be slightly warm because it's been holding in my hand, which is 98.6 degrees. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just like if you look underneath the bottom of your sock, it's optimal sock wearing fabric. It's like, get out of here. But that's my little tangent on Subway and, I guess, course, beer. Yeah. Um, we had mentioned this before. You know, he did. He was one of the uh, creators and executive producers of Tales from the Crypt. He only directed three episodes, sadly, in the first three seasons. Uh, but it's um, that's a show well worth seeking out because of legal problems. They can't remake it like they've been wanting to. And um, unfortunately, the series is only on DVD, but it's not like on HBO Max for whatever reason. Which is uh, prime. It is. Well, I mean, the rights issues are, have always been very complicated with the show. And, like, the final season is was all shot in London, in uh, England, um, with uh, kind of actors that became famous, like um, whoever the James Bond is right now. 
Daniel Craig. Yeah, Daniel Craig is an episode of that. Daniel Craig is also in an episode of the Indiana Jones, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I I do want to just say since I've seen I've seen Dig That Cat He's Real Gone which was the first Richard Donner directed segment it's got Joe Pantoliano it's it's the perfect it's like the perfect premise where he's this like escape artist who's like famous for like being buried alive for like weeks at a time and then dug up and he's fine and the whole reason he's able to do this is that he used to be homeless and he volunteered for a medical experiment. And the whole experiment is the scientist found out that cats literally have a gland that gives them nine lives. They have a gland that allows mm. them to resurrect themselves if they've been killed. And he gets that gland put into him. And so, like, and, you know, he kills the doctor to keep the secret, I think, and, like, you know, goes on to do his like, escape artist tricks. And he's planned it all out. Like, this is my last one because I'll be on my last life. Then I can retire with all this money. It'll be great. And there's all these great flashbacks. And it's only, like, when he's buried alive for the final time that he realizes, oh, shit, I did die once before. I died on the operating table when the gland was installed. So he's just buried alive and dies oh, screaming in a grave. Yeah. Perfect buried alive ending. And unlike most of Richard Donner's stuff, this one does have some Dutch angles and some like some sort of campy extremes, but it works so well. It's it's Donner not being Donner. And he's just as good at not directing like Donner as he is as directing like himself. It's it's really amazing. Of course. I mean, there, there's a when I think of Tales from the Crypt, one of my favorite episodes is in season two. I don't think Richard Donner directed this, but I can't say for sure. And uh, the premise is uh, a guy is uh, suspicious that his wife is cheating on him. And she's always like hiding, making these phone calls and being kind of weird. And so he he decides uh, to murder her because it's a Tales from the Crypt episode. And it, as it turns out, he, you know, kills the wife and uh, hides the body and, and, you know, cleans himself up and and goes back to uh, his, his dining room. All of a sudden the lights come on and people going, surprise, it turns out she was just preparing a surprise party for him. That's a perfect EC reveal. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, going to say ones... that as a joke, but it turns uh-huh. out that's actually Yeah. Like, yeah, wow, so the other seg- segments he directed, he did direct the ventriloquist dummy, which has Don Rickles as the ventriloquist and Bobcat Goldway. That was great. Yeah. Uh, is in it? Uh, and then let me see what is in. Oh, and Steve Suskin. And then the other one was a Western episode, uh, the showdown hmm. about a gunfighter confronting his past. It's got David Morse, uh, Thomas Duffy. Excellent. Well, you know, Showdown was his segment in Two Fisted Tales. I'm wondering if it's that same segment. You know, it could have it been probably recycled. Is. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Um, next was a, a movie he did based on an old TV show, uh, but yet it's in continuity, I guess, called Maverick with Mel Gibson, uh, Jodie Foster, and James Garner. Garner is in the original TV show. And this was uh, kind of like a... I, I think this one's really good. I have not seen it in a long time, but it's uh, kind of breezy um comedy western thing going on with a lot of uh showboats and gambling and all these things uh william goldman did the script i think it's just sort of when when mel gibson was kind of at his height doing like studio pictures and stuff and he liked working with donner obviously i think this is a pretty good way to do a a tv show as a movie pre-constant scandal (laughs) mel gibson yes yeah right Right, uh, this is a 
Well, at the time, like like making making old TV shows into movies was big. This was the era of the Brady Bunch movie. I think there was a, a attempt at a Monsters reboot around this time. But Your Maverick is really it. It. they made a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and and like and Maverick Maverick is really fun because one, it's like it's a western, but it's not about gunfighters. It's about gamblers, which is great. Like so many conflicts in this movie are solved by playing our hand of poker rather than drawing on each other. Like it's, it, which, which is, I love, I love that you just remove the gunplay and put in card play in these games of wits. Uh, there's a heist aspect. It goes all over the West. Uh, it both romanticizes the old West, but then also shows it as a dusty, terrible place where people are dying constantly. Uh, and the other thing that I absolutely love, there's this whole segment where it turns out Maverick is in good with this one uh, tribal group. Uh, and there's this whole segment where he's just kind of, he, he's like living with these indigenous Americans. And like, it's it's one of those things where it's so human and down to earth. They don't fetishize uh, any like tribal lifestyles, but they don't dehumanize the people there. And there's this like Russian baron who they have conned the Russian baron into thinking it's legal to hunt humans for sport in America. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they there's this whole thing where they to get all this money from him they they fa- they do this whole fake thing where they give him a a bad pistol with a crooked sight so he won't actually be able to hit his target and they make up a whole lie oh no no this guy's going to die he's going to die of the plague but he wants a warrior's death so if you shoot him it counts as dying in battle and even then, he doesn't even shoot at at the tri- at the guy from the tribe he shoots at Maverick with the blanket draped over him. <laughs> I um I think this is a pretty uh successful film too. Again, this is like like you said that era of time where like you know your your parents' favorite television show is now being remade into a movie, and um this one was a lot of fun. And even at a young age, I responded to it. And as someone who is a nut about westerns, um I think it's really successful. And like you said, it does glamorize the period, but it also reminds you that it was probably terrible. Um, but also I have to say there's been a lot of uh, I'm a avid Jodie Foster fan um and I have to say cast the way she's cast in this she plays it off perfectly like I I I just I buy her character I buy what she's doing and there's a lot of times where she's kind of fatally miscast as like a romantic lead and you can kind of tell there's a little bit of a disconnect there but I think in this it it plays off perfectly and there's great chemistry with uh James Garner and Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster and uh Graham Greene and you got some old time, you got some, you got James Coburn in there. Um, it's a good old school, new school kind of movie that um, popped up when there was a lot of new westerns cropping up, like Unforgiven and uh, Tombstone, this, uh, Silverado. It was, you know, it's a, it, it shouldn't work, but it really does, actually. And I, I, I would really like to rewatch it. Okay, well, she so... must have liked working with Gibson because she later directed him in The Beaver, which is a very strange uh dark comedy interesting uh so there's one there's one thing that i've got to uh, got to point out because you've got this triad with mel gibson jodie foster and james garner who did we mention james garner played the original maverick on the tv show yes okay yeah so the there there this gets dropped about halfway through but but it's a big reveal at the end that that maverick turns out to be like james garner's illegitimate son oh Uh, that's right like that's kind of like a reveal. And Jodie Foster's character is the one that's figured this out. And she even points out all the things set up in the movie. But the thing, the, the, the thing is, and like, she's also been playing this weird, like 
she's been playing off of them sometimes flirtily the whole movie. There's this, it gets dropped about halfway through, but in the first half of the movie, there's all these, this setup seems to be that she is James Garner's illegitimate daughter. Oh boy. And like, mm. and, and that he's got two kids. And, but like, this just gets dropped rather than contradicted. So like, there is this whole thing at the end where like, they're both in where, where, where Mel Gibson and James Garner are like in the bathhouse in the tubs and she's there stealing their money. And like, you know, and like, this is, this is really weird. There is a weird, just a little bit. There's a weird, like Greek tragedy, sexual tension going on in this scene, and I don't know if it's entirely intentional or not. Interesting. No, I mean any of these would be worth a watch again, but this one especially, I remember having a good time renting it and watching it with my family, and sort of, I liked that it was less violent and sort of more funny and it kind of made a i mean it's a good way to introduce westerns in a way to people it's um i saw it in the theater twice oh wow did you okay nice. uh the very next year he did uh assassins uh with Sylvester stallone and antonio banderas um other than this being filmed in puerto rico uh i do know it was uh, an early produced script by the wachowskis who would later do the no the, Ma- the matrix movies yeah um and this one gets overlooked a lot. I've never seen it. Um, they used to play this on TV some. I do recall that. Um, Brasher, have you seen this one? No, regrettably, I have not seen Assassins. And um, one of the Wachowskis, she is gonna uh, has directed the fourth Matrix movie, which comes out later this year, and we've seen no trailers or nothing about it. I'm hmm. I'm curious. Yeah, uh, Neil Patrick Harris is in it. Um, okay. Uh, they were not able to get the character that plays uh, Mr. Smith in it. It's a Hugo Weaving? Yeah, which I think is kind of a shame. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we'll see how it goes. It's been a long time since there's been a Matrix. And yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, and it's the first yeah. Wachowski uh, uh, solo film from one of them, so it'll be interesting. Uh, Thrasher? Oh well, just that we we skipped over we skipped over the other big music video that Richard Donner directed the video for "It's Probably Me" from uh, the Fields of Gold Sting album. Um, yeah, that was the music that was the theme song for "Lethal Weapon 3. and and that, that version. Well, I mean, like it's weird, right? So on the Sting album, it's kind of more low key, but in the "Lethal Weapon 3 opening credit version. Like all the Lethal Weapon movies, Eric Clapton is there noodling in the guitar in the score. And uh, so you have all these cool guitar solos that are not, in the original version, it's kind of more, uh, a bit more milquetoast sounding. Um, does it have the cast of Lethal Weapon 3, like, dancing on stage? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, it's a very low-key song about, like, uh, a guy kind of admitting to his flaws. Like, it doesn't really fit Lethal Weapon that well. It, um, does Joe Pesci have a rap? Uh, no, but he did have a tie-in album to My Cousin Vinny, yeah. and uh, he had an early, early album in his career called like Little jo- Little Joey Sure Can Sing, where he covers <laughs> the Beatles and stuff. That's, that's, Help! Uh, I need somebody! Help! <laughs> I need anybody! <laughs> oh, he did do, there was like a Joe Pesci rap song, and I, 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 I had to double check everything, because I was so convinced it was a joke, but no, it was all too mm-hmm. real. Yeah, um... Next, 97, Conspiracy Theory as Mel Gibson, Julia Roberts, uh, Patrick Stewart as a bad guy with a ponytail. That's kind of different. 
Yeah, I kind of remember this, and I kind of remember digging it. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out, though. No, it's exactly the same thing. I saw it on cable, like, the year after it came out, and I don't really, and I remember liking it, but I don't remember anything about it. But the premise is pure genius. Uh, The the premise is that uh, Mel Gibson plays a, a taxi driver who has kind of like a mental disorder and he publishes his own newsletter where he blows the lids off all these conspiracies, except all of his conspiracies are just these like delusional things that his head comes up with, except one of them turns out to be 100% true, but he doesn't know what, which one and the people behind the conspiracy come out to try to kill him. Yeah. I think uh, this is a movie you could only make in like pre-internet age because if you remade it nowadays, it would the, his character would just be like like a men's rights activist on like Reddit or something. Yeah, that's that's the thing. This this probably you ought to see it just as a historical artifact because this was back when conspiracy lore was weird and fun to dive into, not the unremitting stream of horror that it is today. Yes, it is an unremitting stream of horror. You're right, and. Um, I, I again, I remember we it was on um, the every once in a while in our hometown, the pay-per-view channels would just be randomly unscrambled for like 24 hours. Like maybe they <laughs> sent it to the wrong address or something. So this is one of those movies that was on for like 24 hours back to back. I think we taped it. And I was like, I remember thinking, I was like, I thought this was going to suck and be a little dumb. And then it wasn't. And we were really surprised. And I was like, this is kind of cool, right? Again, a little long. I mean, it's clocking in at nearly uh, nearly two and a half hours, 135 minutes. Um, but I remember being pretty – I think it was pretty cool. So I might want to revisit this. Does the, it mention uh, the internet at all? Because it's 97. Uh, I bet there's probably some wonky old scenes where they're like, we're going to log on to the internet. Okay. Don't so, pick up the phone. I, I, I just have to like po- point this out. Isn't that a isn't that a weird era of media technology back when there were scrambled channels on cable? Yeah. And, and did you all did you all have that thing where like 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 where like all, like you you go to school one day and like half of your friends have this weird smile on their face and then and then like you know like okay dude from two seventeen to four. To four forty-five last night, the Spice Channel wasn't scrambled. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and like inevitably, right. like one of the kids would notice it and call the other kids. Uh, it wouldn't call me for some reason, although like that would be a weird phone call in the middle of the night. It's after two. Mm. Why do you, are you calling? I think I think what happened is that um, I think what would happen is that like if your neighbor called and said hey i want to watch conspiracy theory at two o'clock from from two to four or whatever and then the cable company like yeah sure and they're like what's the address like oh okay so let's just do like i don't know that whole block you know what i mean (laughs) and uh because you know it's just it's i don't think the technology is really there we could specifically well you could but you know i'm sure just sometimes they're feeling lazy or they just "Ah, fuck it you know we'll just give it the whole street or something like that you know, I think that's going to be the next like nostalgia YouTube channel. Will be somebody has a VH copy, a VHS copy of the scrambled cable network, and they just put the scrambled version of the movie up on YouTube. That's how I got Scream Two on tape. So let's see if I find that VHS for next time I visit my folks. I mean, one house we moved into, we had free HBO, Showtime, everything, just because they forgot to cancel it from the old owner, and we never got charged for it. So like for half a year, we had free premium channels, and then. It stopped, but I think we ended up keeping HBO just because it was when Sopranos was on, and it was just such a big 
Oh yeah. Thing. I remember back back in the day, you could call up because I remember I was homesick from school. And my mother noticed that Natural Born Killers was playing on HBO that day. So I was like, yes. And she actually called the cable company. And she's like, yeah, I need you to scramble HBO for like the next 24 hours. <laughs> and you could actually do that. It was pretty wild. Because oh. huh. there was no way I was going to get to see Natural Born Killers when it came out because I was like eight. How about that? These, um, so we don't have that many films left as we wrap this up here. He uh, sadly only, you know, had a... I guess he was retired, or maybe he just couldn't get funding together, but he, his last film was in 2006, but a year after Conspiracy Theory 98, Lethal Weapon 4, we already talked about this one. I think, you know, it's, even though it expands the cast and takes a long time to get started, there's this business with catching a shark on a boat in the beginning that feels like it takes half an hour, that has <laughs> nothing to do with the main story, um, is, you can just tell the actors are having a fun time. And over the end credits, it plays Why Can't We Be Friends as it shows pictures of uh, the technical crew and the actors and stuff making all the other movies in the series. That's funny. <laughs> There's, um, again, a funny thing. The, the universe must have really wanted me to like uh, Richard Donner because this was another pay-per-view de-scrambler that I taped off of television. Um, <laughs> and again, I was a little hesitant because I already knew Jet Li was and was very, you know, into my Hong Kong action flick stuff so it's like okay how is this is gonna suck and actually you know it was a pretty damn good i have to say for for a fourth entry and also for a franchise to have the same director for all four movies is pretty impressive i'll say certainly i mean pretty unusual as well um and that's nice to see uh, the next one i think it's one people forget a lot it's uh based off a of michael Crichton book timeline uh, thrasher did you ever see this one Yes, I actually saw this for the first time a few years ago, just like kind of on a following a wild hair on a on a streaming service. And it's it's like it's it's competently directed, but it just it seems it seems strange to have a time travel film with a scope this small and stakes uh. this low. Yeah, it stars uh, Paul Walker, who at the time was hot off the Fast and Furious franchise. It yeah, I don't know. Like, time travel and Michael Crichton, of course, he's going to try and do that as a story. And this is something where, because uh, Jurassic Park did so well, you know, they had the movie rights sell before the book was even published. And, yeah, I think it's not quite the big action spectacle the, tra the poster tries to promise you. Yeah, and, and and the whole the whole premise is like these scientists have found a wormhole, but like the wormhole only goes to 14th century France, and they had been sending people through it to sort of you know check things out and and you know just do do like little things you would do with that kind of wormhole, and then somebody's father gets trapped in the past, so they have to launch an expedition to get him back, presumably while minimizing all possible time paradoxes. Is there a character that goes back in time and assassinates Al Gore because he doesn't believe in global warming? Well, no, again, it only goes back to the 14th century. Oh, that's France. right. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the one thing, I don't know, like the, the one, the only thing that really sticks out, and this is one of those things where, and you'll see this in like Jurassic Park, there's all these little technical details, which even if Crichton doesn't get them right, he's clearly tried to do his research to make the science fiction seem at least plausible as science. And there's a whole thing when they're like preparing to go back in time, 
to minimize the risk of time paradoxes, they're going back in time with reproductions of period clothing. And there's this whole speech about, no, we can't use fiber. We can't, we can use a natural fiber, but it can't be woven in this style because that textile manufacturing method won't be invented until the 17th century. So like, there's like there's like details like that which I do appreciate, but it's just all in service to a movie that that it's difficult to get invested in. Yeah, it looks odd. I don't know I'll, if I if I have the time and I'm really curious, I I might check this out. Right, the final film Richard Donner did was in 2006, kind of a low budget uh, thriller with uh, Bruce Willis called um, Sixteen Blocks. 21 grams. Oh, yeah, where an alcoholic uh, police officer has to escort a witness from police custody to a courthouse, and it's a distance of six blocks where the action happens. And uh, co-stars Most Def. 16 although blocks. Now it looks like Most Def is going by the name Yassin Bey. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. I like I like him as an actor. Um, mm-hmm. He was pretty good in that Kevin Bacon one, the, the Woodsman, uh, Monsters Ball, but... Um, this, this, you know, this looks like a movie Walter Hill was supposed to direct. Hmm. I, I could like, see that, sure. Yeah, and this, this, I don't know. I feel like a movie like this is like a little out of time, like the tough, rugged cop exploitation kind of gag. Like, I don't know. I, I can't really rag on it because I, I haven't seen it, you know. But it, uh, you know, it looks a little out of its, uh, a little out of its, out of its element in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's about you know the cop has to. Escort uh, most deaf, who's the I think a, a witness that's supposed to testify or something uh, for sixteen blocks. I mean that's the story, and it has Bruce Willis with a mustache, which you don't really see um, that often. And that had given up by now, or is he still doing stuff at this point? Willis, uh, let's see, two thousand six. Eh, I mean that's when he started doing a lot of these direct-to-video movies that he just pops up in for five minutes so you can have his big face on the poster. Yeah. So I think it was kind of his, I guess you'd say, decline. Like, it's it's weird. It's Sometimes Bruce Willis can do really good, and sometimes he can't, and it just depends on what he's doing. But he does a lot of... Um, it was around the time we first started seeing him doing, like, direct-to-video stuff, and maybe the theatrical stuff yeah. wasn't doing as well, with the exception of he did those two comedies that did pretty well. Uh, oh, geez, with... Um, I, I can't remember what they're... The whole nine yards and the whole ten yards. Yeah, and he he popped up in um, Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. I, that was oh, he's really good in that, yeah. Yeah, yeah he is actually. Really good. Yeah. Like, I feel bad, kind of, you know, bagging on him now. But um, yeah, what a interesting dude. Oh, Looper. Yeah, there's that too. Mm-hmm. People like Looper. Yeah, every once in a while, he just goes for it. But um, yeah. did, did you ever see Sixteen Blocks, Thrasher? Because I have not either. Re- regrettably, I have not. No. Yeah. And I mean, I, I did work at Blockbuster Video when this came out. Nobody would rent it. I don't think the title uh-huh. Sixteen Blocks lets you know what it's about. And um, David Morse is in this. I mean, that's a really good actor. It's a really good cast. There's no reason why I, I shouldn't have seen it by now. But, I mean, yeah, Richard Donner, later in his career, uh, you'd see him on a lot of documentaries or commentaries on on DVDs and Blu-rays. He was um, on an episode about the Omen in the uh, Shutter series. I think it's just called Cursed Films or something like that. Yes. 
I, I remember that. Yeah, it was, it was pretty decent. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, he was trying to get a Lethal Weapon 5 made with the original cast. That, okay. that didn't right. happen. Uh, Donner also was, at some point, trying to get a Goonies sequel. I mean, there's been rumors about that for over two decades now, because I remember I was in high school and people were I... saying, oh, they're going to do a Goonies 2, they said on anycoolnews.com or whatever, and that never ended up happening. Um, oh, I mean, if they were stranger things, it probably will now. Maybe, or I think maybe his, it could be his death will inspire it to happen when it wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so, Richard Donner, here's one to you. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this In Memoriam episodes. Well, can, and, can I touch on, on one last thing? Yes. All right, so so he... he produced and executive produced a lot like uh, of course a lot of the things he worked on but as a producer or executive producer he's also attached to some amazing amazing movies so here's just here's like an expurgated list so executive producer of the lost boys executive producer of john candy's delirious uh the two-fisted tales pilot free willy which was one of the biggest movies of the 90s mm. uh, oh, the boy. tales from the crypt keeper animated series uh See Demon Knight, Free Willy 2, Weird World, which was that other EC Comics TV pilot. Uh, And that one's fascinating because it is both an anthology series and a workplace comedy. Like the characters from the different anthologies interact with each other. Uh, So let me see. uh, Bordello of Blood, uh, Perversions of Science, which again is, is a weird recommend if not a not necessarily an enthusiastic one. It's just so weird. Uh, See Free Willy 3. Uh, But this is what's amazing. X-Men and X-Men Origins Wolverine. I can only assume he was brought onto X-Men because, oh, here's one of the two people that have made successful comic book movies at the time. Let's, yeah. let's I mean, it, it was really to be more of a consultant and his um, wife, Lauren Schuler Donner, uh, produced all the X-Men movies. And as to why he's listed specifically for Origins Wolverine, uh, maybe it was to give more credence to the origins idea. I'm not really sure. That seems a bit odd. I don't know. I mean, I mean, who? But maybe you know, the first X Men was such a hit. Let's let's bring him back for the spinoff movie. You know, one that mm-hmm. jumped out to me for producer credits is uh, Any Given Sunday in The Omen Three. Yeah, yeah, that's Any Given Sunday is a Oliver Stone film too. I wonder if it was just through his production company or something. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, really not that long ago, they did, uh, I think Josh Gad has a YouTube series where he brings a uh, cast and crew together to, to do a kind of zoom call about these old movies. And he did one on the Goonies. Oh, and no, I asked. Yeah, that was pretty recent. So, um, but you're right, Thrasher. Thanks for pointing that out. He's produced a lot of different things and, We'll certainly miss him. I wonder if there'll be kind of unmade projects he was working on that other directors might pick up. Sometimes that'll end up happening. Well, I feel like I I, I could see like Goonies too. You know, it's been it's been rumored to be in production for so long. It's regrettably like if if it truly was in production and he was involved, I'm sure there's a standard of quality he's trying to maintain, and I'm sure that probably gets keeps the movie incubated a bit longer than some suits would like. So I could totally see with him gone, a Goonies 2 gets fast-tracked. I just don't... I mean, if you make it about their kids or something, that would be kind of... Eh. I'd rather just have them remake it if you're going to do something with Goonies or do a TV show again. But again, again, you know, Stranger Things 
rips that off so much. I don't know. You'd have to really yeah. think of a way to bring something to the table. I, I think enough's enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, I guess we can end on this note. So if you were to say to someone, uh, watch one of the films Richard Donner has directed, which one would it be? Oh, this is a heartbreaking decision. I guess, yeah, you know, I guess maybe, maybe I would probably just default to Superman. I think it's just, it's a good movie on its own, but it does kind of do everything he's good at. I would say, I would say Maverick, you know, I think it's kind of a a fun kind of gambling Western, as we, we pointed out earlier in the show. And it's, based on a TV show people might not be familiar with, and uh, you get to see kind of James Garner have a a juicy part later in his career that isn't The Notebook. So, um, yeah, I would say Maverick. Uh, And Alex? Um, You're probably going to be shocked when I say this, but I'm going to go with The Omen. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just such a... It's such a a freaking, you know, crackling good um, horror flick, and it's got these kind of, like, almost like blockbuster uh like um uh qualities but it's also like kind of creepy and it's also a lot of fun in its own weird way and it's got probably some of the coolest most creative deaths out there so and it's also like it's technically like a feature debut so like holy moly like uh, what what a great flick so yeah i'd go with the omen uh, they said to me are you ready i said i'm ready are you guys ready they said yeah they said okay roll the camera and they roll the camera and uh they said, Chris? He says, yeah, okay. And Chris came off that, uh, I, now you're getting me emotional, but he's gone. I wish to God he wasn't. And he came off that thing, and he flew at the lens all the way down, and the lens was zooming back with him as he came, and he came up to the very end, and he, he banked. And he actually banked his body and rolled out, and everybody just stood there frozen. And it was both tears and cheers, and we saw it the next day on the... And, I said, we got it. We won. We know where to go now. It was just, it was magic. Very emotional. 